0: I've thought more about ice cream this month than I think I normally do on Sunday mornings. Uh, Today, we are wrapping up our series, Make the Most of It. For the past month, we have been looking at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesians about how we can make the most of the church that God has given to us. And last week, we talked about how when we do make the most of the church, when we are the church, it's a wonderful witness out into the world around us. But in order for us to really be the most effective witness, we need to understand what's happening out in the world. We need to know the questions that people in the world are asking and how the church, and specifically the gospel message that we believe to be true, can help to answer those questions. To tell us more about that today, we are excited to be welcoming a guest speaker. His name is Justin Briarley. Justin is out of the United Kingdom and he is an author, he's a podcaster, a broadcaster, and and really a cultural apologist. And I've known of Justin's ministry and his work for many years, been very impressed by uh, what he does. I love his apologetics, I I love how intelligent he is, I I love the uh, phenomenal content that he produces. But as I've gotten to know Justin personally, what I appreciate so deeply about him is his ability to understand what's happening in our culture, and that Justin has a perspective that we desperately need to hear in the church. Because the the more he engages with our secular culture, he becomes actually not more fearful, but more hopeful. And that he's found that there's reasons for us to be optimistic that the tide of faith may soon be returning. And it's a message that we here at Wooddale absolutely need to hear so we know how to best engage the world around us. And I am confident that today, not only will you find Justin's message informative and helpful, mostly you will find it hopeful. And so would you please join me in giving a warm Wooddale welcome to Justin Briarly.
1: wow good morning thank you so much for the for the very warm welcome we've had since we've been arrived in minneapolis and here at wooddale um i'm justin and i'm here with my family they're just down on the front row give us a wave guys is that all right um uh, and uh, thank you it's it's been uh, I I can only say we've been overwhelmed by the hospitality that we've received here at the church and generally in Minneapolis and Minnesota. And we bring greetings from our home church, Woking United Reformed Church in England, where my wife Lucy is the minister. And it's just been a delight to be able to share both at the first service this morning and on Wednesday night, if you were there, uh, about some of the things that I've been involved in, uh, a new book I've recently written, and the way that I think we're seeing the culture around us change in all kinds of ways, ways that, as Pastor Kyle said, I think are actually quite hopeful for us. You've been looking at this series in the last three weeks, make the most of it, and you've looked at gathering and giving and growing. Well, today, we're gonna wrap this series up and think about going. How do we go, as a church, to tell the amazing story of Jesus to our friends, family, and neighbors? Well, I've been uh, speaking at Wooddale, but we've also been out and about visiting some of the sites in Minneapolis. And I was told there was one place, if we were coming to Minneapolis, that we needed to go. It's listed, I think, as one of the seven wonders of the world. It is, of course, the Mall of America. And uh, it, it is a big mall. I mean, it's, I think, four floors, each about a mile wide in circumference. Uh, And a lot of people I've met, to be honest, and told them that we were going to the Mall of America. They kind of have half-apologized for it. They said, oh, my goodness, uh, actually, we loved it. I mean, where else can you go shopping? And there's a theme park in the middle of it. Uh, I mean, if we had that in the UK, the kids would want to go shopping every day. But uh, I, I did try to get into the spirit of the Mall of America. My wife, Lucy, shared a picture on our family WhatsApp of me enjoying one of the many delights that it has to offer that is a duck donut, and if you can't read it, the caption Lucy wrote is, yes, that's bacon on his doughnut. Um, so I, I've been embracing American culture. Um, but, but seriously, there, there was something about the Mall of America that, that was relevant to the message this morning, and that's that on the top floor, like any big mall or shopping center, there was a movie theater, a multi-screen movie theater, And and that's big business here in the U.S. and all over the world. Hollywood is a multi-billion dollar industry, and they pump out movies. Movies that we go and see because I think we love the stories that the movies tell us. What What are the biggest blockbuster films that we go and watch? It's the Marvel superhero films. It's the Star Wars saga. It's the Harry Potter stories. It's because these are stories that tell of a battle between good and evil. Of love triumphing over hate, of the underdog coming through, of sacrifice and bravery and heroism. And I think the reason we love to go and watch those stories is because we want our story to look a bit like that story. We want the world to be a bit like the world of the superheroes and the Harry Potters. And I think we are, as one famous psychologist put it, addicted to stories. Jonathan Gottschall published a popular book called The Storytelling Animal. And and he said this, he said, we as a species are addicted to story. And he even goes on to say that if if any of us end up thinking that our life doesn't have some kind of story to it, a narrative, some kind of meaning, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, then we actually end up depressed and anxious because we need a meaning. We need a purpose. We need something to live our lives by. We need to feel we're part of a story. And, and I think I agree with this psychologist, Jonathan Gottschall, but, but not just purely from a psychological perspective. I think the reason we, we feel like we need to be part of a story is because we've, that's been wired into us by God. Because we, we actually are part of a big story. A story that is being revealed through scripture through Jesus and through his church. But the question is, how do we tell this story to a world that has so many other competing stories in it? Everyone's got their own story that they want to live by. And I want to maybe draw out some lessons this morning from the person who wrote the book of Ephesians that you've been in the last few weeks, the Apostle Paul. But rather than stay in Ephesians, I'm going to take us to an episode where he was actually free because, of course, he he wrote the book of Ephesians from prison. But when he was free, he was on various missionary journeys, and one of them took him through Greece, through the city of Athens. And it's in Acts 17 that we find a famous account of Paul passing through Athens and presenting the good news of Jesus to the thinkers in Athens. Now, if you have a Bible and you want to follow, it's in Acts 17, and we're going to start at verse 16. And, And just to set the scene here... It's worth remembering that Paul, he's a Christian, of course, but he's a devout Jew by background. And the idea of idols, things set up as kind of things to worship in the place of God, would have been abhorrent to him. And so you can understand why, as we get into verse 16, it says this. While Paul was waiting in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this Babylon want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Sounds a lot like my social media timeline. I don't know about you, but it's full of people hearing and telling about something new. And if you like, the, the Areopagus, this place in Athens in Greece, was kind of the social media of its time. It was the place where people went to debate the culture and the latest thing. This was where the influencers hung out and asked each other questions. The, the Areopagus is, is actually a kind of rocky outcrop, sitting under the great temple of Athena in Athens. And it was the cutting-edge place for debate and dialogue. And we'll see the next part of this on the screen. Then Paul stood up in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. I just love Paul's approach at the Areopagus because he could have gone in and berated them for their idol worship. He could have said, this is terrible what you're doing. You should cease immediately. But he doesn't. He recognizes that even their idolatry is a sign that they're searching for something. Something that might just be true. And so he begins by saying, look, I can see how extremely religious you are, in every way." And then, he's going to show them what their religious searching is actually pointing towards. Now, you fast-forward 2,000 years today to modern Minneapolis, and you might say, well, look, we're living in different times, right? People aren't really religious anymore, okay? We don't have idols on every street corner. I've been to the Mall of America. I've seen some idols, okay. We just don't call them the goddess Athena anymore. I think, actually, we're still very religious today. It's just the, the religious instinct has been channeled in different directions. Let me give you a bit of an example. So, I try to keep fit. I try to go running a couple of times a week. I'm, I'm nowhere near the fitness levels of Kyle, I just wanna say that. I, I haven't run any marathons recently, but I do try to get around the block And so, earlier this week, I I did a little bit of jogging around some of the the houses in Eden Prairie. And I noticed, just outside a couple of houses, some yard signs outside. And, And I thought, you know, this is the perfect example of what I want to talk about on Sunday. So here's an example of the yard sign I saw. And this is really interesting. It says, in this house, we believe. And then it follows a number of ethical statements. Black Lives Matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. Now what you're looking at there is basically a creed, okay? A creed is a set of statements of belief about your faith in something. And and in the Christian church, we obviously have a historic set of beliefs set down in creeds. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, and so on. And this is a modern creed. We're no less religious today, we're just religious about different things. And I don't know what the religious affiliation necessarily is of the people inside the house, but, and, and it might be actually then they don't think of themselves as religious. In fact, they might think religion is one of the problems with the world today. But I think by displaying a sign like that outside their house, they're actually doing something very religious. Just as much as a Christian who might put something like the Ten Commandments outside on their front lawn, this is someone saying, these are my beliefs, this is my faith, these are my commandments, if you like. And if I was channeling the spirit of the Apostle Paul in modern Minneapolis, because I've seen similar signs on some of the businesses and shops, I might say, people of Minneapolis, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. Not that much has changed in 2,000 years. Now, I just want to be clear, in referencing this, I'm not criticizing the sentiments on this sign. Of course, there's a political aspect to some of those statements. But in fact, I think a lot of that modern creed actually goes straight back to the Bible. It's about human dignity, and justice for the oppressed, compassion for the vulnerable, that's where those beliefs are actually rooted in the end, even if they're expressed in different ways today. But the point is, whether people realize it or not, they're actually still very religious. So why is that? Why are we still religious, even if it's expressed in different ways today? I think it's because we need that story to live by. You know, there was a story that once governed the Western world. It was the Christian story. It was a story that gave people a sense of who they were and why they were here. It was a story that said you were created for a purpose by a God who loves you. And that even though things have gone wrong and we've messed up, that that God came in person to set things right again. And in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, we are invited into a new story, a story about the redemption of the world where we can play our part. It's the most glorious, extravagant, beautiful, exciting story to be part of. And people understood themselves in the light of that story. The problem is, in the West, we've lost that story. As the tide, if you like, of the sea of faith has gone out, and the tide of secularism and materialism has kind of replaced it, we've lost sight of the Christian story and all kinds of other stories have come in its place. In fact, about 100 years ago, the Christian thinker G.K. Chesterton kind of predicted this. He said this, when people choose not to believe in God, they don't thereafter believe in nothing, they become capable of believing in anything. And I think Chesterton saw what was coming because as I said, people can't live without some kind of story to make sense of their lives. So in the absence of the Christian story, People reach for all kinds of other stories, and people get very religious about these stories. It might be a political cause, it might be a social justice issue that someone treats as sacred, it might be a sexual or gender identity that becomes sacrosanct to someone. And sometimes, on the activist end of this, you can get very religious looking symbols and rituals and flags and all kinds of things, even. You know, people who question the orthodoxy can become heretics. There's, there's a really quasi-religious sense in which people hold these stories. And before you go thinking I'm only kind of talking about the progressive left, it happens on the right as well. You know, I could tell you about a certain figure we all know of, who is, you know, proclaimed by many people as the savior of America, who's currently being seen as a political martyr, but who will one day rise to vanquish his enemies and restore peace and justice. We know who I'm talking about, but a lot of people are putting their faith in that person. There's all kinds of stories that people are using in the place of the Christian story to say, this is where I find meaning, this is where I find purpose, this is where I find identity. But none of them, none of them can do the job that only the one story can do. None of them can make sense of our lives in the way the Christian story of the God who came gave himself for us can do. In fact, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And 400 years later, that hasn't changed. It's the God-shaped hole. And we try to fill it with all kinds of other things, but none of them can satisfy. And it's why our culture is in such a mess today. Because all of these stories are are competing stories. We live in this tribalistic, polarized culture where all these stories are essentially competing with each other. And it's no wonder that we can't get on with each other. So coming back to Paul's message in the Areopagus, he tells his audience, there is a God that you've been looking for. And he said this on the screen, it says, it says, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Again, I love Paul's approach here. He doesn't berate the pagans for their idolatry. He says, I can see you're searching for God. You're groping about in the dark. It's such a gracious way of engaging with people. It's, it's seeking to affirm what he can, but redirect it and say, look, you've been searching, I can see that, but look in this direction. And I think we can do the same today. God is closer than people think. He's right there in the stories that they're telling themselves, the stories about love and purpose and justice. It's just people often don't recognize that the bigger story makes sense of their smaller stories in the end i think these stories that people are telling themselves are actually running out of steam in our culture when i look at our culture we're perhaps the most technically and socially and culturally advanced culture you know we should be on top of the world we should be happy but actually what statistics tell us is that we're actually the, the loneliest most anxious most depressed culture why is that I think it's because the stories we are telling ourselves aren't actually satisfying us. They're actually bringing us down. Because they don't ultimately make sense of us. And in my book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, I talk about the fact that many modern secular thinkers have identified this. They call it the meaning crisis. And many of them are actually turning back to the wisdom of ancient literature like the Bible, to the Christian story and saying, you know what? Maybe there's more to this than we thought. Maybe there's a reason why this story kind of founded every other story. Maybe that's the story we need to look at again. And in the talk I gave here on Wednesday night, I I talked about the fact that I think we're living between two tides. The tide of faith has gone out on the West, but I don't think we can live like that for too long. The tide, I think, is going to come back in. I think we're starting to see the telltale signs of that tide returning in all kinds of interesting ways. And as we do that, I think we need to be ready to tell this big story again. We need to be ready to go to our friends and neighbors, sit down with them, hear their story, and say, look, have you considered that your story might make sense in a bigger story? How do we tell the Christian story again? I'm going to give you three things that I think could be helpful. I think we want to make them want it to be true, make people want this story to be true. We need to learn as a church how to engage people's imagination again. Sometimes we think that getting people to become Christians is just about saying, look, here's here's an evidence for God, here's three reasons why Jesus rose from the dead. That should be enough, right? I don't think, actually, people are primed to hear those things unless they kind of want it to be true in the first place. One of the the best Christian thinkers and communicators of the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. He was an amazing intellectual who wrote many books of apologetics arguing for the truth of the Christian faith. But I think he was most persuasive in his Narnia stories. You've probably read some of the Narnia stories, tales of, of, of kingdoms and knights and valiance and talking animals and a ruler. Full of love and justice, but not a tame lion, Aslan. And and who of us haven't, perhaps as a child or even as an adult, poked the back of a wardrobe, just in case (laughs) there's a magical world lying behind it? You see, what Lewis did in telling those stories of love and justice and beauty and heroism, he made us want it to be true. And then he said, it is true. There is a loving supreme ruler. He's not called Aslan in your world, he's called Jesus. And I think that has been an extraordinary way in which he was able to open up the Christian story to people who may never have given it a second thought if they'd just read his apologetics books. We need to find ways of speaking to people in their language through their stories today. I mean, the Apostle Paul did it brilliantly at the Areopagus, he used their own poets to speak to them, it says this. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's actually quoting an ancient Greek poet. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I mean, the modern equivalent of me giving a message to someone who doesn't believe is to maybe start quoting Jay-Z lyrics and Taylor Swift or something to them <laughs> and say, look, it's there. They're talking about the same thing. You're looking for this thing. Let me tell you about where you might find it. And I think we need to be ready to do that ourselves, to to, to find out what turns people on, what is their passion, what is their story about, and show them how that story makes sense in light of the big story. Here's the way Blaise Pascal put it. He said, make religion attractive. Make good people wish it were true, and then show that it is. We can use our God-given creativity in the church to show people why they would want this to be true, and then show them that it really is true. The second thing I've found is that it's really important that we keep Christianity weird. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean, you, you sometimes go to cities and towns in the US and it says, you know, keep Portland weird or something. I, I think what, what's fascinating is, as, as I've sat down with a number of secular thinkers who have been talking about Christianity and, and wondering whether we need to to go back to something like the Christian story to make sense of the world. Some of them are kind of on a journey themselves where they're interested in that story and and even maybe interested in going back to church. And one of the things they've all told me is, look, Justin, if you want me to go back to church, here's a piece of advice. Keep Christianity weird. What they mean is, if you want to attract people to church, don't just give them a warmed-over version of what's already available in the world. Make it distinctive. Make it different, make it mysterious. Major on the weird stuff, okay, because that's what makes Christianity unique and different from what people are already getting in the world. Sometimes it feels like we lower the bar in the church to kind of try and make it more accessible to people. Well, sometimes actually we need to tell people, look, there's a challenge to Christianity. There's something that you're entering into. This story, yeah, it's weird. The story about a God who came in person, died and rose from death. I mean, you can't imagine how weird this story was to the first people who heard it in the Greco-Roman world. That was not the way gods were supposed to act. It's still weird today. And we need to embrace that weirdness and say, this is different, and that's a good thing. Because this is different from what you're going to get in the world. We need to look different. Third thing is, we need to create... A church community that counters cancel culture. Forgive the tongue-twisting title. But this is so important. If we're going to welcome in people who are kind of refugees from the meaning crisis, we need to be ready to create a culture in our church that welcomes them with grace and a place to ask their questions, to have doubts, to be messed up. Because guess what? We're all a bit messed up. And that's the whole idea of church. You know, someone once said, the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. That's what we're meant to be. The problem is in the culture, which as I said, can be very religious. It can be religious in all the wrong ways. It can be very judgmental. If someone fails, they get cancelled. There's no second chances. There's no grace. But actually in the church, that's not the way it is. We are here to be a place of grace for people who have messed up, who are still finding their way, who haven't got it figured out. Can we be a light to this world? A place actually where people see the story being told confidently, but with grace and love, where we can agree to disagree sometimes because we've got something bigger that unites us. That's my dream for the church, that we would be this community that counters council culture. We need that in our world today. I want to leave you with a story of someone who I met uh, a couple of years ago. He's called Paul Kingsnorth. He's a celebrated author and poet in the UK. Uh, He's got a background in environmental activism. And he's fascinating because as a young man and and into his um, middle and, and later years, he kind of bounced around on a search. He started kind of as a teenage atheist and then he kind of drifted into Buddhism and started looking for things there. And, and he even went over to Wicca as well. Um, and, and he said to me, you know, this search, it was about looking for something, something that might be God. And he started by kind of thinking, well, maybe I, I need to worship something. And maybe that I find that within me in Buddhism. And that that didn't satisfy. So he went to Wicca, which is a kind of pagan nature religion. Maybe I need to worship nature. Maybe that's. But again, it it didn't work for him. And three years ago, Paul Kingsnorth, to his own great surprise, and the surprise of his readers, announced that he'd become a Christian. He'd never expected his search to end in Jesus, but it did. And when I sat down to talk with him about it, he, he said this. He said, I'd gone looking for Buddhism... And I'd gone looking for Wicca because I thought they fitted with how I saw the world. I didn't think Christianity fitted how I saw the world at all. I didn't want to be a Christian. But he says, I started having really strange experiences that are difficult to describe. I was having dreams and meeting Christians every five minutes. I I used to run a writing school and suddenly I had vicars asking me to read their sermons and give them feedback. People I'd known for years suddenly told me they were Christians and I hadn't known. I felt like I was being hunted by Jesus. (laughs) This was not the plan, but it was happening. And he said, if I'd listened to this sort of thing five years ago, I'd have thought it sounded absurd. But Paul Kingsnorth finally found that story that made sense of his story. You can read more about it in the book because it is a fascinating story he has. But I am bumping into more and more people like Paul Kingsnorth who are discovering that the stories they've been searching for and telling themselves, they just don't add up in the end. They don't make sense of who they are. And they're coming back and rediscovering there's a story that's been here all the time. It's the story of God. It's the story of the God who came to show us that our story can be part of a much, much bigger story. And that's my prayer for you, Wooddale, this morning. As you are the church, and as you go out into your neighborhoods to be with your friends and family and colleagues, that you would know that you are carrying a story that makes sense of all of those other stories that you're going to encounter. May you know that Jesus is with you and that you don't have to worry, you don't have to be anxious about the world we're living in because actually that story, it's ready to be heard again. We need to be that place of grace that counters council culture, where we can share that story, where we can invite people in and we can go out to be bearers of the best story, the greatest story ever told. May we do that with grace, with love, and knowing that just possibly they might want it to be true. God bless you. Amen.
0: Well, Justin, thank you for your message and uh, we have an opportunity to do just a little bit of, uh, of Q&A here and um, just move this out of the way. Again, apologies for the Mall of America. Thanks for. <laughs> you don't need to apologize. We, we loved it. It was great. Uh, Justin, one of the things that I've just been um, so impressed by in terms of your ministry and, and, and watching what you do, uh, on a regular basis, you sit down across the table with people with whom you deeply disagree. Uh, who not only believe a different story, but who have really made their professional career making fun of our story, Uh, of of telling people that they ought not to believe our story, that our story is is harmful. And yet you you sit across from these people and have conversations that are filled with grace. Uh, You don't back down from what we know to be true, uh, but engage them in a way that's that's very honoring and that you have a, a very
1: civil conversation. How, how does that happen? Well, in all honesty, it happens with practice, actually. You have to go and have stories and conversations with people to, to know how to do it. And yet, yeah, you're probably going to fall on your face a few times in the process. But actually, if you don't go out and actually have a conversation with someone, you'll never know what, what could actually happen. And, and I'm always surprised, actually, that when you get in person with people, some of the barriers come down. The problem is sometimes we live in this social media age where a lot of these conversations take place on social media and that just isn't the right place to have them because inevitably the anonymity of that and the way that we kind of want to score points, it it doesn't lend to good conversations. But I've found, as I've hosted these shows that have brought people together in person, sometimes really interesting things happen when you're actually sat with someone. It's harder to be rude to someone when you're sat down with them And sometimes you actually engage with the person rather than just an argument. And as a Christian, I think there's a kind of a confidence that we can have, but it's not a confidence of kind of, I'll show you I'm right, I'll defeat your argument. It's actually the confidence to know our story enough to be able to listen sympathetically to someone else's story. That doesn't mean we have to agree with their story, but it does mean that we have to hear them and understand them, and that's always going to be the first step to any kind of fruitful dialogue happening. Yeah. It, it, nothing will change if it's just kind of the battering ram of arguments against each other, but when I hear your story and I'm willing to listen to it and engage genuinely that's when God's grace, I I find, flows. And and that's that's been an amazing story sometimes.
0: That's a great principle, that that the more confident we are is really displayed by our willingness to listen to other people's story. And I imagine that allows other people to then listen to our story. and want to be open to, to sharing our story. So continuing with that theme, Justin, there are... Uh, many individuals who, who are out there, many ideas that are out there that as parents or as, or as grandparents, w- you know we hear this, we see this, it's in our schools, it's in the culture, it's it's in social media. and we're just a little anxious. Mm. I mean we're a little nervous mm. uh, because the the concern is, oh my goodness, if if my kids believe this or if my kids hear this, my kids are exposed to this, you know, what's going? I have to do something, I have to stand in the gap. I have to prevent mm-hmm. them from hearing this. Um, So as as parents, I mean, how are you and Lucy
1: navigating the culture in which we live
0: with that same level of of confidence?
1: Well, like any parent in the modern world, we can't wrap our kids in cotton wool and, and create a kind of Christian bubble around them. That just doesn't exist. So you just have to accept that this is the world we live in and that we're called to do exactly what the first Christians did. They were surrounded by all kinds of competing stories, too. And it's about actually being open and gracious, okay? So there's a famous verse that I often quote, 1 Peter 3.15, which says, always be ready to give a reason, uh, to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the reason for the hope that you have. Now that suggests that in their culture, there were people asking questions. There were other stories floating around. And we just need to be ready for that. And that's about actually helping our young people, not by kind of putting them in a bubble where they'll never hear another argument, but by just accepting that they're gonna hear other ways of thinking and that we have an opportunity as parents to get round the table to talk about that, to have an open conversation, So, what what did you think about what your friend said there at school? What do you think about that that particular thing? And actually, that just helps young people to be ready. It's always a mistake to try and just sort of shield them because they will be exposed to to different stories, different beliefs and so on. we just have to trust in God's goodness that if we do the best job we can, giving them the opportunity to share, to dialogue, to, to take away something from us that gives us a sense of what we believe the Christian story is, then we have to then place them in God's hands and say, okay, we're gonna leave you to it now, and, and we're gonna pray that that story is gonna hold you as you go out into the world.
0: Yeah, Justin, we have several of our students that are here. Uh, they're, they're in schools, many of them in public schools, some in, some in private schools. Um, what message would you give uh, to, uh, to our students about how to be confident about their story and uh, how to navigate their own world?
1: I, I think, like I said, keep Christianity weird. You know, the, the story we have is, is a weird one, okay, but that's okay, okay, because actually it's important that we do look different sometimes to the culture around us. I, I know what it feels like. I remember when I was a young person a long time ago now, um, in which I, I just felt that sense of, I just wanna look and feel and be the same as everyone. There is that feeling, but actually, we're told to shine as a light, and that can sometimes be difficult, okay? It, it's not always easy to stand up for who we are and what we believe, but actually, we have a great example of Jesus doing this, okay? He didn't do it by kind of just preaching and you know, telling people what they should believe. He went round to their houses. He invited himself round for tea with Zacchaeus. He went and spent time with people that the authorities believed were were not people that were close to God, who were very different, but he transformed the people he met with by simply being there with them. And when we go with Jesus into those situations, we can be that light. We can transform situations with grace and love, not by kind of standing outside and shaking our fists, but by going, two people sitting with them and saying, let me hear your story and let me tell you mine.
0: Yeah, which again comes back to just the confidence of knowing our story and even kind of majoring on the things that make it distinctive. Yeah, absolutely, right? for sure. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, Justin, kind of final question for you. Uh, if, if the tide of faith may be returning, if, if uh, the, the stories that we have in secular culture are coming up short and people just feel like they're lacking something that's holding it all together, and they're more open now to the story of the Gospel. What would you tell us at Wooddale Church? How can we be ready for
1: that tide to come back in to be able to receive people? Well, I said this on Wednesday night, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I do think the church is uniquely positioned. Um, We're living in a culture where people are not engaging with each other face to face in a way they did before. It's possible to live your life completely isolated from other people because of social media but actually we were made to be in relationship with each other and with God. And the church is still one of the few places where different people from very diverse backgrounds can find a common home, a place where they find mutual support, respect, and also can learn to live even with their diversity and their disagreements, actually. I think this is really important because we're living in a culture which doesn't know how to disagree well doesn't know how to live with people who don't share their convictions and beliefs and political values. But actually, the church has to look different. It's why Paul said, in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. All are made one in Christ Jesus. There's something about this bigger thing that unites us, that supersedes and transcends all of our differences. That, that is a miracle. I mean, it doesn't happen in our culture. And it didn't happen in the first century either. The church was a miracle, and it can still be a miracle today. So go and be that miracle where you invite people in, people who are not like you, and say, that's okay, because we have a God who is bigger than all of us. And together we'll find out what this journey looks like. That's gonna be, that's not ever easy, okay? That's a challenge. But we need to be a church who takes on that challenge. And it sounds like a miraculous thing in our culture, but the good news is we have a God who does miracles because he raised Jesus from the dead. If that's true, then we can be his church today and show the culture that there's a different way of doing it. Oh, amen to that. Uh,
0: Justin, we have some resources for uh, individuals as, uh, as as they're out kind of navigating this world. There are two books. You've, you've authored both of them. They're available out in the common
1: space when our service is over. Uh, tell us just briefly about those two books. So the first book is called Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. It's, it's actually more like 17 years now. <laughs> but um, that's really a book that tells my own journey of faith and the way in which I see the evidence for faith really stacking up and why you can go and have those conversations with confidence with people who maybe don't share your beliefs. But the new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, it tells the story of why new atheism grew old and why secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. It's about this turning of the tide that I mentioned. And if you want to be kind of informed about where we might be able to have new opportunities and conversations in our culture, that would be a great book to pick up.
0: That's right and uh, books will be available in both lobbies. Justin will be over here at uh, door one that's on this side of the building for those of you that are here at Eden Prairie and you'll be able to sign, yeah, sign some sign, copies. I'll sign them and if you want to sign up for my newsletter you'd be welcome to do that too. That's fantastic. Justin, thank you for your message you. and uh, for spending so much of your time with us here at Wooddale this past week. Can we say thank you again to Justin? Thank you Dan. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for this series about how we can make the most of the church. And starting next week, uh, we turn the calendar to September. That's when a lot of ministry and uh, kind of life uh, in in our culture kicks off again uh, in the fall. And uh, it's just a wonderful opportunity for us to put into practice how we can be the church. Uh, Starting also next weekend, Pastor Dale will be back from his study break, and he's going to be launching a brand new series for us about knowing and doing the will of God, something that is so important for every single one of us. And so I do hope you'll be back with us next weekend as uh, Dale begins that important series for us. If you do want to pick up some of those books, again, they'll be available out in the common space. And if you want to talk with Justin, he'll be on this side of the building. As we end this series, would you uh, please stand? Let me pray for us. And, uh, and then we'll send us out. Father God, we are grateful for the gift that you have given to us of the church. And Father, I, I pray that over the past four weeks, Lord, that your word about this body that you have created, this, this community that you have given to us, Father, is something that we, we ought not to take lightly. But, Father, it's your chosen instrument for how you want to bring your message, your story, to the world. And, Father, I pray that that we would step more fully into that. Father, I pray that that for those of us as individuals, we, we would orient our whole being around this story. That is true. And, Father, I pray that it's from that story that we would engage in a confidence, Lord, that you are calling others to find themselves in your story as well. Father, in the days and the weeks ahead, may, may you give to us the gift of an opportunity to share about that story with someone who is searching in all the wrong places and with all the wrong ideas. And Father, And that your spirit give to us a compassion and a thoughtfulness about how we articulate that story to them. So, Lord, as we go from this place, let us know that you go with us. And that we are going as your witnesses, empowered by your very spirit. We pray all of this in the powerful and the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. God bless you as you go.